0: Well, you would take your Bibles, open up to Psalm chapter 16. It is our final time together. I am thankful to be with you. I genuinely mean that deeply. And so if you ever end up graduating and moving to Stillwater, come find us at Eagle Heights. I would love to see you there and hope we could be an encouragement and help to your soul. Uh, I've loved getting to spend time talking about this with you. I also hope it has been helpful For you to hear these realities, as helpful as it has been for me to study them, to sit and dwell on the inexpressibly joyous foundation we have in the gospel of Jesus Christ, to reflect on how that should flow out in my life now, to ask by the Spirit to to reveal where that needs to change. And then we get another session to look at this one more time. You can kind of see where we're moving from past, this foundation to present, how this should flow. And then we'll look at this glorious future that the Christian has. And it's one in a text that's so beautiful, it's almost daunting going Can I even communicate this helpfully? It's that feeling of how many of you take pictures of your food? Are you those people that try to share it with people? Or am I just an old man that's like, oh, look chicken and rice like and wants to show people are like this ramen is wonderful and I want to show like real ramen I'm not like talking like I got a packet out and like people need to know about this but I'm saying like the real stuff and then when you show someone does anyone ever truly get it as well as you did with that picture like they're like yeah that's a picture of food they're not like mmm like that's helpful or take for example I could show you a picture one of my wife's most gracious gifts uh on my 30th birthday I'm an old man she uh she bought us tickets to a Chelsea soccer game in London. So like, we got to go. To, which, by the way, she bought those tickets knowing that we had to get to London. So I then had to get us a London trip. So like, it was really smart. Girls, keep that in mind for later. Like, she got to go see London. I got to see the game. It was great. So we were there, and I could show you pictures from it. Like, if some of you know soccer, like Christian Pulisic was like ten feet in front of me, and like all this wonderful stuff. And it was so. And I could show you that, and you would still go, yeah. Like, but I. I don't fully get just how incredible that was. I can't fully see. And my prayer is that as we look at Psalm chapter 16, as we work our way through this to this glorious conclusion, that I could, in the Lord's kindness, even help you see a glimpse of this glorious hope that should keep you even now as you long for it. I want to take you to a text for a final time that's in this song of David, this psalm of his, that that should help you as you walk out of these doors, because you're going to, after this weekend, after tomorrow, walk back out into the world, and after having spent two days, 48 hours, limited sleep, thinking through, like, hey, I should have joy in the Lord, you are going to be hit with the world. And it's going to ask, is that true in your life? I hope you hear it should be, and it can be. Uh, I want you to hear that if you are in Christ, you stand on a firm foundation. And that reality should flow out of you in joy now, in all of life, for the rest of life. But as we look at this final text, I also want you to know that you can look forward as you run as well. That you look to that foundation, your joy flows out of it. But you can also look to the sure promises of our good And perfect God. So let's finish our time looking at five certainties that we can learn from the life of one who's trusting in the Lord. Five certainties, right? These are something that is absolutely true. You can bet your life on it. You can put everything you have on it. This is certain. Five certainties to cling to as we walk through life. The first one, first certainty, is that we can Pray to the one who is able to keep us. We can pray to the one who is able to keep us. How good is this? Take a look at verse 1 of chapter 16. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Refuge. Think though we may not be facing the same trials or struggles as David, you will face hurt, frustration, persecution. You will be tempted and tried by the allures of the world. Look at David's plea, this prayer of his in song. Preserve me. Keep me, protect me, defend me. Keep me in you. Protect I am prone to wonder. I am pressured by great difficulty. I am tempted unto evil. Help me. If I am to continue, Lord, I need you. And Lord, you must, for I take refuge in you. That's this beautiful language saying, you are my shelter. As the water rises, I run in trusting you are the safe vessel who will carry me home. Friends, do you hear that? That the Lord is a sure refuge. A place to go as all of the forces of life press in. And why can we say that? Again, this all goes back to the gospel. It's because of Jesus, because the all powerful God has rescued a people, covered them with uh, his blood in Christ. He has atoned for their sin. The Holy Spirit's been given to them as a helper and a comforter, so those who are in Christ can take refuge in the Lord. David's prayer here we see ultimately answered for us in Christ. This is the truth that Martin Luther found as he mourned and wept over his sin, going, what hope is there for me? Like, how could a wretch like me have any peace? How could I find refuge? And that's where he wrote that famous hymn that was kind of carried through the Reformation, called the Reformation Hymn of a Mighty Fortress. I won't read the whole lyrics. I want to because they're amazing. But here he writes this, thinking about this reality, saying, A mighty fortress is our God. He's never failing. Amid the flood, he will not fail. Even though our ancient foe seeks to tear us apart, he won't fail. Because if our own strength was where we hoped in, we would be losing. If the right man was not on our side, we would be losing. Who is that? He says, it is Jesus. He calls him Lord Sabaoth in that, this one who is the Lord of armies. And so though this world filled with devils should threaten to undo us, he says, we can endure. We can endure, for one little word shall fell him, is how he says it. Who is that word he's talking about? That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. He is talking about Jesus. And the spirit and the gift are ours through him who with us sideth. So what's the response? Run to him for refuge. He says, let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. A mighty fortress is our God. That's true. And that is so true in Jesus. Come to him. You know that phrase of Psalm 46.1. The Lord is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in times of trouble. That is true as you repent of your sin and run to him and praise God for that. And that is true in all of life. The rest of life. So, Christian, what can you do as you trek on in this world and feel the waves of temptation and sorrow and hurt and fear and doubt press in on you? Look at verse 1 and pray this prayer Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. And remember, He is able to keep you from stumbling. We've said that, and we've looked at Jude and how he says that. We heard that in Philippians, and so Martin Lloyd-Jones encouraging his people as they were fearful in the midst of war and difficulty. He says, remember the one who keeps you. He says, the man who's trying to be Christian is trying to hold on to something. The man who is a Christian feels that he is being held by something. He will hold you fast, and he can You're not calling on someone who doesn't have the strength to help. That's like my friend asked me to spot him, and it was one of the more embarrassing moments of my life. He's like, give me a lift. And I said, all right, one, two, three, and I couldn't get it off the bar. That's not who you're relying on, because I would fail you. The one whose strength you are leaning on is the omnipotent Lord of all creation. And in Christ, he will keep you. You can pray to him. And why must it be him? Why am I pleading with you to fall on him? Let's press on in this psalm. The second certainty that you can cling to in this world is the Lord is the one who is truly good. He is the one who is truly good. Look at verse 2. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you you are my master the one over me my authority and i have no good apart from you it means i have nothing good besides you jim hamilton more clunkily words it my good things are not over you so what is david saying nothing compares to him nothing competes with his glory Nothing should be elevated or worshipped alongside him. He is the greatest treasure. I pray you will see that and hear that and know that through your life. I pray you'll see that the Lord is good and his steadfast love endures forever. He is gloriously good. And sometimes that word is hard for us to understand because think about how you use it day to day, right? If I came up and asked you, hey, how are you doing? What would you probably say? Good. Right? Hey, how was the pizza? It was good. So when we say, like, the Lord is good, we're using language that isn't necessarily as powerful and helpful. So when we talk about the goodness of God as one of his attributes, it's almost not helpful for us because we fail to see he is the very essence of goodness, Like, he is far better than the greatest best that you know. He's far more righteous than the highest standard you can imagine. Far more benevolent than all the kindness you've ever seen put together. And he is far wiser in all that he does than we could even fathom. He is good. I pray that you would bury yourself in Scripture and that by the Spirit you would taste and see that the Lord is good. Like not just all right, but good, perfectly, abundantly good. I pray you would taste that because some of you are with your spiritual taste like my wife is with food. My wife does not eat fruits or veggies. I know, and she's alive. It's great. Um, she, her, her whole diet is brown. Um, she is a carbivore. That's her word is what she uses. She likes bread, pasta, meat. But we, we pushed her some. On our honeymoon, this, this is going to sound ridiculous. On our honeymoon, she tried a hamburger for the first time ever. Yeah, some of you are shocked. Yeah. And she liked it. She tasted and saw it was good. Like her eyes were open. And now she's like, I, I want more of that. And we, we, we have eaten many burgers since. Praise the Lord. But she, she tasted and saw that. Now, I want to be very careful because I'm not calling you to sample the Lord. And I'm not comparing him to an item of preference because there may still be some of you who are like, burgers, meh. Uh, this is very different. I'm, I'm calling you to repent and believe, to take up your cross and follow him, to present your body as a living sacrifice. You must place all you're all in him your faith in him and here his goodness is then just not an opinion he is perfectly wonderfully eternally good and any notion that we have of goodness is a mere dusty dirty reflection of a glimpse of what good truly is and so recognize In saying that he is good, we mean he is abundantly good, and that anything else, all that the world has to offer, is ultimately not. And yes, they may provide momentary pleasure and happiness and satisfaction, but that will fade. And yes, they may be kind and lovely, but all that we know is not perfectly good. It's all stained by sin, by selfishness, by pride, by envy, by hatred, but our God is not. He is good. That's my God. David says, that is my Lord. You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. There is nothing I have as good as you. And friend, in Christ, you have the same Lord. But not just that. You have the church. Look at verse 3. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. We talked about some of this in Philippians chapter 1 and thankfulness for Christians, but oh, how good the church is. Spurgeon described the church as the dearest place on earth. The dearest place on earth. Do you agree? Do you see that? Sinners from every tribe, tongue, and nation, redeemed, brought together, made a family, a kingdom, unified and worshiping. That's something, as David says, to truly delight in. Like we talked about that last session, you hear the joy that David has in others who are trusting in the Lord. Those who are following the Lord, whose trust is the only one who is good. And so here, when you have the Lord, you have a family, you have the church. What a delight and joy that is in all of life, for the rest of life. And notice David says this after verse 2. So he isn't saying that he elevates them above the Lord, but that his love for the saints, for the church, flows out of his love for the Lord. So the same should be true for us if you love the lord you will love his people and they those who trust in the lord are excellent ones like you hear this they are wonderful hear that they are they are wise is what he's saying they are building their house On a firm foundation and helping to build one another up. This idea that we'll see in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25 of gathering together, not neglecting that, that we would press one another to know him and make him known. But why is David saying that standing on the Lord, finding your refuge in him, and those who do that are excellent? Look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. These excellent ones are following the Lord. He's saying that is excellent, that is wise. But those who do not, those who follow the world, their sorrows will multiply. In effort to find rescue from the woes of this life, they are digging themselves deeper in effort for escape. Danny Akin, theologian, seminary president, says it simply. What they believe will bring joy only brings sorrow. What they believe will bring joy only brings sorrow. And you can see that in these next verses, David is referring to idolatrous pagan worship, saying, I won't even participate in that. I'm not even going to say the names of their deities. They will not receive my worship. You can maybe look at those verses and go, okay, good, easy, I'm not really lured into to worshiping Baal or Astaroth or Dagon. I haven't been to any of that recently. Hopefully that's true. I do hope that. But also, friends, there are little gods pleading for your worship daily. Forget the Lord. Forget his word. Forget his people. Trust me. Come to me. I promise your sorrows will be gone. They won't multiply. I will fix them. Yet when you take their hand that they pleaded you to trust, you find that none of their promises are true. That running into sexual sin does not offer freedom, but wounds and tears. That the promise of comfort through through lying, through insulting, through slandering, through tearing down another, promises an escape or a good feeling, but leaves you guilty, destroying others. And it even wounds the one who delivers them. Hatred promises justice, but just throws more logs on the fire. Popularity forces us to forego morals. And it takes your very soul as you effort to keep it. Wealth assures that it will solve problems, but so often brings unwanted friends, family fights. And it can't fix everything and ultimately cannot go with you. Autonomy, this desire to have no authority, nobody to tell me what to do. I don't want any rules. I don't need that. It promises you freedom but brings chaos and will not deliver. Like, hear this. I've just touched the surface of what the world is pleading with you for every day. They overpromise. And it's not that they underdeliver. They just deliver death. It's the multiplication of sorrows. Puritan Matthew Henry said it this way. He said, those that multiply gods multiply grief for themselves. For whoever thinks that one God is too little will find two too many, and yet hundreds not enough. You will look, and you will look and listen to promise after promise and seek it, and it will leave you dead. But those who trust in the Lord, he is good. And we see that all over Scripture. Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. He promises and he keeps it or God is not like the idols. Numbers twenty-three, nineteen says, God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? He makes promises and he keeps them. And where do we see this most fully and perfectly? The fulfillment of Genesis 3, 15. The promise that the offspring of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That Jesus will defeat death. That's why we see in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. And so if you heard that list of sins or idols pursued or thought about or chased after and you thought, but that's That's me. Like that, that's where I've run. That's what I am tangled up by. That is what I have done. I don't think you understand. There is no hope or joy for me. Friend, I hope you hear the good news of Jesus Christ. And that through his life, God graciously forgives sinners and calls them to himself and promises to be a refuge and strength for all eternity. It's the words of Betsy Ten Boom. If you know Corey Ten Boom in, in the Nazi internment camps, Betsy was her sister who was horribly mistreated and is dying in her arms. And before she died, talking about having mercy through the gospel on the Nazis who killed her, says, There is no pit so deep that God's love is not deeper still. He is the one who is good so don't believe the promises and lies. But remember this truth that God is gloriously good. And that's mostly and perfectly seen in the gospel. And as you're seeking to find joy, I pray it would lead you to give thanks to the Lord for he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever. Therefore, we get to our third certainty, which is that the Lord is indeed a beautiful inheritance and meditation. The Lord is indeed a beautiful inheritance and meditation. Like that's a certainty, a promise, something you have to look to. When you look at verse 5, so David says, looking at these excellent ones compared to those who are multiplying sorrows as they pursue the world, it says in verse five, "The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. Because David knows what we have discussed to be true, that he is the good and perfect refuge. And so David says, "You, you are my chosen portion. You are my cup. Like He's my portion, what I will get, what I will pursue, my all and all. He is what I will fill my cup with and be satisfied. And if you know Psalm 23, you know that if the Lord is our shepherd, our cup overflows. And that portion language, it's pointing back to where Aaron was told in Numbers 18, that by the Lord, I am your portion and your inheritance. Me, I'm what you get. And the language of the cup is contrasted. You can even see that in the Psalms, chapter 11, verse 6, the wicked whose cup is not filled with joy but with judgment. A promise of pleasure served as a cup of poison. So what is David's inheritance? Look at verse 6. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. What is David's inheritance? His land and sustenance. Yes, the Lord takes care of him wonderfully and beautifully physically during his life. But what is he primarily pointing to? It is the Lord. The Lord is his portion. And so knowing that he is good and his steadfast love endures forever, knowing that those who trust in the Lord are like a tree planted by streams of water, firm, enduring, and fruitful, David says, The Lord is my chosen portion. I choose him. I have life and I have death before me. I choose life. And I hope you will make the same plea. I hope you will make the same decision, for God has graciously made himself known to us in Christ by the Spirit through his word. And David is thankful for that glorious revelation. So look on in verse 7. He's seen this. He says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. So because he knows the Lord who he is, his word. He thanks him that he has seen that. And he is likely like the man in Psalm chapter 1 who meditates on him day and night. And that word meditate or meditation is often associated with other religions but really isn't a bad word. It's the idea of dwelling deeply on truth. It's not an emptying of oneself but a filling of oneself with truth. And so he does what? Look at verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me. And because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. So he knows this ceases to be true. And what does he do? He sets him before him always, regularly, consistently. And what is the result of gazing on the Lord? You see this assurance This promise held on to. David says, because he is at my right hand, and here that's not the Lord serving David, and he isn't literally right beside him, but it's saying he is with him. He is by his side. He is a sure refuge. And here, Christian, we have that more fully in the Spirit, the helper, the comforter. And so David's saying because he trusts in the Lord, because the Lord is his portion and cup, because his counsel is his meditation and instruction, he will not be shaken. If he has the Lord, nothing in life can ultimately shake him. And hear that once again, Christian, you have that even more fully confirmed in Jesus. Those who have Jesus will not be moved for all eternity. you have a glorious inheritance. Again, remember 1 Peter, that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. Those whose portion is the Lord will not be shaken. I hope that's good for you to hear. I mean, that you would pray, Lord, keep me. For you are the only one who is good. Everywhere else is sinking sand, so I will turn to you. I will praise you for your counsel and your instruction. I will place it before me day and night because of you, because of who it all points to, and I will not be shaken. This is true in my best days and in my worst days. That is true today, tomorrow, and forever. And so, our fourth certainty is that those who trust in the Lord can rejoice in their sure salvation. Those who trust in the Lord can find joy in their salvation that is sure, can rejoice in their sure salvation. Take a look at verse 9. So building off of all this, he says, Therefore, so because of this, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. With all he is, he finds what we are talking about, joy. The very core of his being is overjoyed. With everything that I am, all that I have, I am joyous. And my flesh dwells secure. I have reason for rejoicing and I will not be shaken. Why? Look at verse 10. For you, God, will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. He's unpacking this reality, I will not be shaken. You will not abandon my soul to death. You will not let your Holy One see the pit. Commentators suggest that he's saying that his body and soul are secure, that his soul won't be left to Sheol and his body will not be left to the grave. That those who are in him have no fear of death and decay, of the woes of life rather with the lord before them they rejoice as they look to their glorious inheritance and their heart is glad i mean remember our time in first peter as we talked about this foundation of joy peter in doing that wanted to lift the eyes of the christians to what david is getting a taste of here that those who dwell in christ are secure Death will not have victory over them. Rather, in the Lord, they have eternal life. Those who trust in the Lord can and should rejoice in their salvation that is secure, their sure salvation. Christian, does that warm your heart? I mean, is that a reason you find to rejoice? Or have you grown callous to that wonderful news? I would just warn you, Christian, one of the most dangerous places you can be is a spot where you are bored with the gospel, where you think, yeah, that was news for then. I don't need that today, and I don't need it for later. I already thought about this. You may not understand it. And that is a wonderful tactic of the enemy to get you to be crushed by all that comes at you in life. Friends, don't forget the wondrous, secure, sure salvation that you have in the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a sure promise. And that has to be set in contrast to the idols of this world. Because those who trust in this world cannot truly rejoice. They do not have any assurance Their deity, what they are worshiping and hoping in, is their belly. That whatever tastes good, I'm going to go after it and see if that will satisfy. And if you're like me, there are many times I have sought what my belly has desired, and it has had a tummy ache. And it has hurt. And you hear that even more weightily. They are seeking everything that will satisfy them. And all you will find is that it will not deliver. But those who trust in the Lord, those who believe in Jesus, have a sure and steady foundation, an anchor for our souls. And you can cling to that and bolster yourself in that in all of life. Looking to the future. Why? Here is our final certainty. And I want you to see we have this past foundation, this present reality that should flow out of that foundation. And certainty number five, in his presence there is fullness of joy. That's a certainty. In his presence there is fullness of joy. Commentator Jim Hamilton notes that most of the psalm looks at the joy of knowing God in this life. But this ending here looks at the joy of knowing him in the resurrection. And that's helpful for us. Look at verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. Again, as we think about pilgrims wandering, going, David says, you make known to me the path of life. And we've seen from what David has written, it it is the Lord. He's saying, you, you are life. I am to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's true of you, a call to place your faith in him. And it's true that the path of life has been made known to him, but what about you and me? It's that beautiful language in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2. That long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. He has made known to us the path of life in Jesus. We have been shown so clearly what Jesus says in John 14, 6, that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me here, that those who do go to him find life. Whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Like life eternal in heaven with him for all eternity. Is that a big deal? Is that reason to rejoice? Is that joyous news? Look at the rest of verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. And in your presence... There is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. What do you have to look forward to? The fullness of joy. Like it is not merely joyous. It is the fullness of it, the perfection of it, the completeness of it. Right? It's not like those meager favorites that I talked about at the beginning where I wanted to just let you see it and, and say you can't fully experience how good it is. Like, this is earth-shakingly great news. Like, why? Because you have the Lord. Like I, I want you to even just think about how wondrous this reality is. The one who made the heavens and earth invites you to call him Father. The one who is perfectly holy brings you in to dwell with him. The one who's omnisciently powerful stands as your protector and provider. The one who's omnisciently wise is your Lord for all eternity. And there is no better king. The one who's omnibenevolent and perfectly loving calls you his friend and welcomes you home to a place he has prepared for you. The one who is perfectly just has removed all sin and death And tears and brings you into wondrous joy for all eternity. The one who's more beautiful and glorious than all that creation has to offer lets you, by his mercy, dwell with him. Do you see how this, and knowing this reality, should lead to joy? Do you see how this draws us to know him more and more through his word, that we would rejoice in him? Like this should throw us to Bible intake, right? Our regular reading, hearing it on Sundays, discussing it when we can. Theologian Michael Reeves says it this way. He says, this indeed is why we search the scriptures, that we may know God better in all his ways and all his perfections. And might rejoice in him so intensely that we tremble. That we would know him. That we would rejoice in him. For in his presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. But what business do we have approaching this glorious God? none. But remember the path to life, that those who place their faith in Jesus can boldly approach the throne of grace, that their salvation is certain, their future is sure. Is that true of you? Will you trust in Jesus? then will you gaze on him regularly, setting him before you always so that you will know him and remember him and rejoice in him and then look at what he promises. I mean, do you see why this matters? Like knowing this future joy because of our past certain foundation of joy allows us to have joy now. Looking to the end is so helpful. Uh, many of you or some of you may be runners. I used to do it a lot when I was playing soccer. I don't anymore because it's dumb. <laughs> and I don't want to do it. But when I was running and doing a ton of running, what was that part that gave you that excellent final push? It was when I could see what was waiting at the end. When I could look at that and lift my eyes from the frustrating dirt and my weary bones, there was hope. And that pulled me out of the weight and difficulty of that because I said, I I can get there because I know what's coming. When life hits you, you look to what Jesus has done and will do and pray, Lord, preserve me for I take refuge in you. Because again, life is going to come. So when bullying hits, when death hits, when success tempts you to pride, when storms come, when victories puff you up, run to the gospel. Run to the gospel and remember, you have an inexpressibly glorious inheritance in the Lord and this world is not your home. And that should then bleed out of you. So that people look in and say, Why are you so reserved in the midst of this wonderful success? Because I don't want it to make me forget the God I serve. I need Him every hour. He bought me and keeps me. Hey, why are you okay in this heartache and loss? Do you not know what's going on? I do. And I'm hurting. Like, I really am hurting. But this world isn't my home. We don't grieve as those who have no hope. I know where I'm going. Because in God, through Christ, by the Spirit, we can and should have a good feeling in the soul produced by the Holy Spirit as He causes us to see the beauty of Christ in the Word and in the world. Repent and believe and run to Jesus. He has made known to you the path of life. Take it. And Christian, I pray that you would remember the gospel, remember it daily, and you would long for the day your faith will be made sight. And therefore, triumphantly show in your person and declare with your lips that no matter what comes, the joy of the Lord is my strength. Let's pray. Lord, we can't even comprehend how truly glorious you are. How truly good you are. Lord, thank you that you have in your kindness made known to us the path of life. Lord, thank you that in your kindness you've given us your word. Lord, I thank you for these certainties. That we can cry out to you and you are a sure refuge. Lord, I thank you that you are truly good. Help us to know that and worship you because of your goodness. Lord, thank you that you are a beautiful inheritance and meditation. Lord, may we long for that and look to you daily. Lord, I pray that we would rejoice in our sure salvation. And Lord, would you help me and help these students to just catch even a glimpse of your glory. It's far greater than all this world offers. And so in seeing that, we would recognize that if our inheritance is you, that in your presence is the fullness of joy. Lord, I plead with you to protect them Protect them from sin. Or protect them from temptations. Lord, I pray you would help them to remember their joyous foundation in Christ and their eternal glorious future with you. And would that keep them and fill them with joy now in all of life, for the rest of life, for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.